Hi, everyone, and welcome to ABC's of Anesthesia. And today, again, another live Viva session, and we're going to have Megan back on the program. And this time, we're going to go through a bit of a tricky AAA Viva. So, Megan, and congrats on getting through the exam. Um, really fantastic effort. Um, how do you feel? Yeah, look, it's really good to have it behind me and be getting back to normal life. Hopefully, I'm not uh, too rusty two and, a week, two and a half weeks after last doing a Viva, but I guess we'll find out today. I, I found out I was extremely rusty even the day after. <laughs> I think that was Yeah, a, yeah was definitely, a... definitely. <laughs> Okay, let's go with this. So for everyone who can see this, um, it's on the screen, but for those who can't hear are listening to the podcast, I'll just um, talk through it. This is the STEM, um, which take two minutes on. You are asked to review a 76-year-old man for planned abdominal aortic aneurysm or AAA repair on your list in seven days' time. His aneurysm extends above the renal arteries. He has a past history of background of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and a transient ischemic attack, or TIA. He has a BMI of 32 and a 24-pack year history of smoking. He's also a Jehovah's Witness. His medications include clopidogrel, rosuvastatin, perindopril, metoprolol, and metformin. Now, the questions are, what is his risk of renal impairment perioperatively, and what criteria can be used to define acute kidney injury? Um, so you can pause the video uh, and take that time. If you'd like, write out an answer, write out your you know, introduction and how you'd answer this question, and then we'll get started in the Viva in a second. Meg, so what is his risk of renal impairment preoperatively, and what criteria can be used to define a kidney injury? And actually, before I start the question, um, when, when, when you get such a vague question, but that seems quite specific, how, how, do you, how do you think about that? Like, what is his renal impairment preoperatively? It seems like such a nebulous question. Yeah, I guess, I guess there's sort of two schools of thought here. One is to, you know, make an overarching statement, uh, about the patient and the procedure. Um, and I find that, um, in about 50% of cases when I actually, in my actual vibe as I did that, in about 50% I didn't. Um, I figured unless you could say something that really in, you know, 10 seconds conveyed to the examiner that you got the crux of the question, uh, it was best to just answer the direct question, but that's just my sort of thinking. Um, and then in terms of giving, you know, an answer to what's his risk of renal impairment perioperatively, I'd try and consider patient surgical and anesthetic and medication factors um, yep. in the in the context of the specific patient you've got in front of you as well as generally as well. Excellent. Well, let's get cracking. So what is his risk, do you reckon? So I think it's difficult to give an exact number. Um, I know that um, Miller's Our Bible of Anesthesia quotes approximately 7% in a case series of 500 patients having abdominal aortic reconstruction. Um, but then there are specific factors to consider. So in terms of patient, um, you know, he's got some demographic risk factors in the setting that he's, you know, a little bit older. He's 76 years old. He's got a significant smoking history uh, and he's a Jehovah's Witness, which has significant implications for perioperative blood management and therefore perioperative um, hemodynamics dynamic um uh, his, his perioperative hemodynamics as well as his oxygen delivery to his um, kidneys as well as many other critical organs. Okay. And then his risk factors that are pertaining to his medical comorbidities, which, um, you know, we know that he's got diabetes, cerebral vascular disease and hypertension. I would presume he's got some peripheral vascular disease, some CKD and some cardiac dysfunction as well. Um, surgically and anesthetically, I would consider his likely cross-clamp time, which will be related to the um, 
how complicated his aneurysm is, but also the surgeon performing his his operation, uh, any acute hypovolemia and anemia that he may suffer, perioperative fluid shifts, and the location of the clamp as well. So this patient will have a suprarenal clamp. And then pertaining to his medications, his ACE inhibitor as well poses some risks, uh, as well as contrast. So it didn't specify in the stem whether this is an open or an endovascular repair, but if it's endovascular, there will be a considerable contrast load as well, which will contribute to perioperative renal dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to, um, you know, to state the caveat in the exam that, you know, perioperative renal dysfunction or acute renal failure post major abdominal surgery is a significant um, predictor for perioperative morbidity and mortality. Yeah, excellent. Now, as I make, what is the way that you uh, uh, classify acute renal dysfunction? Yep. So I use the rifle criteria, um, which breaks down acute uh, acute kidney injury into risk injury, um, failure, loss, and end stage renal dysfunction. Um, in terms of the criteria itself, it breaks it down by the creatinine rise, that being 1.5 times, two times, or three times the baseline for risk injury and failure, and urine output defined as less than 0.5 mils per kilo per hour for 12 hours, um, for sorry, for six hours, for 12 hours, and then less than 0.3 mils per kilo per hour for 24 hours or aneuria for 12 hours. Uh, and and uh, loss is for, tw- for four weeks before proceeding to end-stage renal failure. Yeah, excellent. So my next question after that is, so your, your junior registrar mentions that she has heard about a minimally invasive approach. What are the risks and benefits from a surgical and anesthetic point of view for the minimally invasive, so the EVAR approach? Yeah, so I was going to say, yeah, what we're referring to here is EVA or endovascular aortic repair, which is typically done uh, using a graft. Um, the benefit specific to this patient is that uh, EVA is associated with significantly less blood loss, I believe 60% less, um, as compared to open aortic repair. Uh, and in this patient, being a Jehovah's Witness, that's a significant benefit to consider. Mm-hmm. The major benefits uh, and drawbacks were elucidated through the EVA-1 trial, which uh, randomized patient to e- patients to either endovascular repair or open repair. And then in terms of endovascular repair benefits, uh, there was a lower perioperative morbidity and mortality uh, in the 30 days after the procedure. However, this benefit was not carried through at five and eight years followed up, where there was no difference in morbidity and mortality, and there was significantly greater um, sort of reintervention rates and perioperative, or sorry, long-term complications of EVA over um, open repair and a higher rate of secondary rupture. Um, Other benefits would be less perioperative pain, uh, no need for laparotomy and shorter HDU stay. Excellent. Um, So let's say if you were to do an EVA for this case, what anesthetic would would you give this patient? So if we were to do an EVA, I would, uh, my mode of anesthesia would be a general anesthetic. Um, my method of anesthesia would be a, um, uh, I would do a slow titrated induction, noting that this patient has significant cardiovascular comorbidities. And I would maintain this patient on a TIVA based anesthetic because I really want to limit the chance of them having nausea and vomiting postoperatively and therefore the chance of them having, um, acute groin hematoma. Um, I would um, give this patient an additional two aniometics. Uh, the amount of analgesia required would be minimum. Um, and in terms of my monitoring, in addition to my standard ANSCAM monitoring, I would have a five-lead ECG because I'm concerned about myocardial ischemia. Um, and a five-lead is just so much more sensitive for picking up ischemia than a three-lead. I'd have an invasive arterial line placed before going off to sleep. And then in terms of my access, I'd have two wide-bore cannulas because there is a risk of converting to open of about 2% and a significant risk of complications and rupture requiring a massive transfusion. I know that this patient can't have blood, but they still can have a um, acute um, uh, hemo, um, 
sorry, I'm looking for the word, but uh, essentially a hypo, uh, a resuscitation using crystalloid to maintain the same intravascular volume. Um, I would aim to extubate this, end, this patient at the end of the case, uh, and I would consider whether they would require a postoperative HDU disposition uh, on the basis of how the procedure went uh, and also on the basis of their perioperative comorbidities. In terms of post-op monitoring, I'd be concerned of a number of complications, including acute renal failure, as we've discussed. And so would you put a CVC for this case? If it was a um, EVA, I wouldn't. If it was open, I would. Okay, let's progress. So let's say you've done a full assessment of this patient and, you know, you assumed a few uh, pathologies there, which are absolutely, you know, reasonable. Exercise tolerance for this patient is greater than four mets. Let's say they're independent with ADLs, able to, you know, walk up two flights of stairs and do most of the things they need. Um, they have no ischemic heart disease symptoms. Uh, their bloods were taken and the HB is 100. The platelets are 200. Sodium is 135. Potassium 4.5. The creatinine is 80. And the group and hold is valid with no antibodies. So considering that information, um, what does your pre-preparation for an open AAA repair for this patient include? So in terms of my assessment of this patient, I would want to assess all of their comorbidities as we've discussed in order to ascertain their severity and stability and whether there's any room for optimization. I think, I think you've sort of adequately yeah. covered that though. Um, so in the actual viva, I wouldn't go into more detail about that. You mentioned that they can climb up two flights of stairs. I'd probably still ask for a DASI questionnaire because as for the METS 2018 study, I think we've only got a 19% sensitivity for being able to classify someone as being able to ma- uh, obtain four METS. Mm. Um, so I'd want to, assess their functional status on that grounds. Mm-hmm. You say, you state that the group and hold is valid, but this patient is relatively anemic. So I'd be wanting to look for a cause of that and optimize anything as far as I could, including iron supplementation. So I'd be doing some iron studies and I'd want to know if that was a microcytic, macrocytic or normocytic anemia. Mm-hmm. I'd also be having a discussion with this patient about um, patient blood management principles. They are a Jehovah's Witness and what a Jehovah's Witness will and won't accept does vary slightly. Um, most won't accept uh, the major cellular product of blood, but some will accept fractions and some will accept cell saver as well. So I'd want that carefully discussed and documented. Um, and if they were accepting cell saver, I'd definitely be wanting to book that as well. Um, yeah. Then then we need to discuss the patient's medication management. So I would continue their statin. There is a renal protective effect of this as well as, you know, just general vascular patients should be on, you know, a statin most of the time. I'd continue their metoprolol. Withdrawing that would increase their risk of MACE. And I'd be wanting to know the indication for their clopidogrel, but I'm absolutely leaning towards withholding that for seven days. Um, in terms of um, their ACE inhibitor, um, there's mixed evidence on this. Um, the vision studies certainly do support discontinuing an ACE inhibitor, um, but the ACC AHA guidelines state that it's reasonable essentially to continue or discontinue. So I like to have a tailored approach to that. If this patient had poorly controlled hypertension, I'd discontinue it if they didn't. Uh, sorry, I'd continue it if they didn't. I'd con- I'd discontinue it. Um, and then I'd consider the personnel that need to be um, involved in this patient's care um, and their disposition. So booking a HDU bed, discussing this case with the uh, floor coordinator at my at the theatre complex, asking for a senior anaesthetic nurse to be involved in the case. Yeah, great. Now, in this patient, you mentioned, obviously, there's contention about ACE inhibitors. Now, with this patient, let's say they did have poorly controlled hypertension, so mm-hmm. ranging values from 140 all the way up to 190. But now you've got a case that you've rightly said this is a you know, major blood loss risk case mm-hmm. going open. How do you balance that? Would you and this patient, knowing those two things now, would you discontinue or continue? Oh, gosh, that's so difficult. Um, look, I think we're going to be having a period of clamping and unclamping. There's going to be hemodynamic instability. There's the increased risk of perioperative you know, blood loss. 
uh, and postoperative hypotension in the setting of, you know, fluid shifts, major blood loss. You're right. I think I actually would discontinue it. Yeah. Okay. Good. Now, let's go with the anesthetic plan. So you mentioned the EVAR plan. What is your complete anesthetic plan for this patient? Yep. So we've, uh, my anesthetic plan will always include pre-op, intra-op, and post-op. I think we've discussed the pre-op component of this. And, and you actually mentioned GA, Artline, CVC for this yep. case, and two big trips. Yep. My difference would be that I'd um, I'd use a volatile based approach rather than a um, rather than a TIVA based approach because I'm concerned about blood loss and therefore loss of anesthetic drugs in the blood system and therefore awareness. Uh, I would use a volatile based approach. I would use a BIS. Um, I should have mentioned that for the EVAR as well, and I'd be titrating my anesthetic to BIS as well. Um, I'd be having uh, I'd be just having just a CBC. Just to, hold, just to hold you up on that, what do you mean titrate to BIS? So, uh, so I'd be aiming for a BIS between 40 and 60, and I'd be titrating my volatile requirements to that. Now, if you, what's your minimum level for volatile? Let's say the BIS was uh, four, uh, 50 at mm. 3 MAC. Do you go lower to titrate a 40? At 3 MAC. As in point three Mac, point three. Oh, Mac. point three Mac. Okay. Mm. Um, look, that's that's a difficult question. I think I I think if it was point three Mac, that's much lower than I would expect, even for an age adjusted Mac. Um, noting that I think there's a six percent decrease in Mac per decade after forty, so we could calculate that out to consider what his uh, you know actual Mac would be. Um, but if it was point three, I, I don't think I'd be de- decreasing from there. So within the realms of what's sort of expected um plus slash minus maybe one standard deviation on either side um and also the, i'd also be looking at my signal quality index whether there's any emg sort of factors with that is, actually let's follow you there what is your uh, considering that you'll titrate to some level of biz what is your lower end of mac that you'd be happy with in this patient providing there's relative hemodynamic stability and your signal quality index is good probably around 0.6 age adjusted mac but yes, I, I don't have an evidence range for that, just gut feeling. And yeah, that's right. Keep going with your anesthetic plan. Yep. Um, obviously, our analgesic requirements at the minute is going to be much higher. This patient's having a laparotomy. Um, intraoperatively, I'd use a fentanyl, I'd fentanyl load this patient and I'd give him a fentanyl PCA postoperatively, as well as, you know, other, um, uh, opioid sparing analgesia, which would include paracetamol, obviously not an NSAID in this circumstance. Uh, and then I'd, um, and then I'd be wanting this patient to have rectus sheath catheters um, or um, tap blocks um, plus catheters at the end of this procedure. Um, their disposition um, would be to ICU. Um, and then I'd be monitoring, um, you know, serial ECGs. I'd consider whether troponin monitoring postoperatively was indicated for this patient. There's, you know, a significant amount of literature coming out around that and ongoing um, renal output um, and uh, renal function monitoring via serial blood tests as well. So you mentioned uh, fentanyl-based with tap blocks afterwards. Any other analgesic management for this besides what you've said? Um, yeah, so look, there is, um, many of these patients will have a spinal drain inserted um, and there is some consideration about whether or not a spinal-based anesthetic on addition to the propof- uh, on addition to a general anesthetic can be useful um, with addition of intrathecal morphine, um, but this depends on local hospital guidelines. However, if this, if this patient, um, their disposition is to ICU, um, my institution would support up to 300 mics of intrathecal morphine, assuming no contraindications. What are your thoughts on ketamine? Um, so ketamine uh, has uses in uh, the management of acute pain and prevention of chronic pain. Um, typically, a loading dose is given at 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, and then an infusion is run at 0.2 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram per hour for up to five days postoperatively. Mm-hmm. Would you choose it, choose it for this patient? Um, I would um, consider his um, 
patient-related risk factors uh, for poorly controlled acute pain. Uh, and then I would also consider his risk of perioperative cognitive dysfunction, as in many older patients, um, ketamine can uh, increase the risk of delirium. That said, so can poorly controlled acute pain. So it would need to be a balance of risks. But I can certainly see a theoretical benefit in this patient. Any other parts of this anesthetic that you particularly will need to manage? Yeah, so my sort of framework, uh, obviously I wouldn't say this in a viva, but um, my sort of framework for how would you give an anesthetic is mode, method, um, specific medications and moments. So moments that are important during the case. And in this case, those moments are um, clamping and unclamping. So in preparation... Yeah, so in preparation for clamping, um, one needs to have medications prepared to manage the patient's blood pressure as there can be, there's obviously an acute rise in SVR or an afterload. Um, so typically, um, what's used or what I've seen used, it would be a GTN infusion via the central line um, that's been placed. Oh. Um, in terms of uh, drawing up a GTN infusion, I put 30 milligrams into 46 mils of normal saline, making that 30 milligrams in 50 mils. And then one mil an hour is 10 mics per minute. What are the other options for? Uh, blood pressure management on clamping? Uh, on clamping. Um, so those would include increasing the depth of anesthesia, um, especially given that the blood flow to the brain will increase and there can be increased risk of awareness. Uh, and then other vasodilators. So um, phentolamine is potentially also able to be used, but uh, I've only ever seen GTN be used, to be honest. Yeah, good. Um, let's move on. So let's say the surgery is pretty complex. The cross The cross clamp is actually on for two hours. What are you most concerned about with a long cross-clamp time? So there are concerns um, during the period of of clamping and there are concerns during the period of unclamping. So during the period of clamping, uh, this represents a period of ischemia to a number of different um, organs and tissue beds. And then in unclamping, this represents a risk of sudden drop in blood pressure because of a decrease in afterload, but also an influx of potassium and lactate leading to hyperkalemia and ECG changes consistent with this, as well as a metabolic acidosis. So how do you prepare for unclamping? So um, there are clinical and logistic factors to consider. In terms of clinical factors, I would fluid load this patient. I would titrate down my GTN. I'd be prepared with a noradrenaline infusion. I'd have um, adrenaline uh, dilute as 10 mics per 10 mics per mil and 100 mics per mil loaded, uh, oh, sorry, prepared. And I'd also check an ABG to know that the serum potassium was the lower end of the normal range. I would hyperventilate the patient um, to prepare for the possibility of a hyperkalemia and and shift that potassium intracellularly with a slight respiratory acidosis, alkalosis. I would also have medications for resuscitation prepared, which would be calcium uh, chloride, 6.8 millimoles in 10 mils. Uh, I'd have uh, insulin uh, prepared and uh, dextrose prepared as well. And then the logistic things are just making sure I have those medications available and making sure I have close communication with my surgeon so that I'm aware when he's right about to, or she is about to unclamp. And I can discuss with them the possibility of stage clamping or reclamping should we have significant instability let's say the surgeon gets on clamping actually does it pretty suddenly but you have done your um uh, preparations with fluid load hyperventilate and everything now you see this on the rhythm strip uh, imagine i'm going to share the screen now this is what you find and, and miraculously get an instant ecg this is what it looks like <laughs> an instant 12 lead ecg instant 12 ecg what is this and what do you do um, so this is consistent with um, critical hyperkalemia. Um, I would scan my monitors looking what, for... Why is that, by the way? Oh, sorry. So there's um, peaked T waves. Um, there's... Um, and it's a broad complex. 
Um, there's a tachycardia. Oh, sorry. Yep. (laughs) You had me. Hello. Uh, Um, yep. So look, I I would communicate, um, with, uh, all members of the, of the operating theater, but most importantly, my surgeon, and I'd ask them to reclamp because I don't, I want to stop the influx of potassium. I'd also scan my monitors, uh, looking for, um, most acutely what the blood pressure is doing. And then I, let's say the blood pressure is, has dropped. It was maintained at 110. Now it's dropped to 70. Okay. Um, that's going to climb a little bit when we reclamp, but I'm also going to treat the cause of the instability, um, which is the hyperkalemia. So in the first instance, I'm going to give 10 mils of calcium chloride, uh, 6.8 millimoles of calcium. I'm going to give um, 50 mils of 50% glucose and 10 units of um, of uh, insulin, uh, act rapid. Um, I'm also going to hyperventilate my patient further um, to shift that intracellularly, and I'm going to consider other methods of hyperkalemia management, which would include fruzamide, although that you know can be a result can result in some instability and salbutamol which can be given either intravenously or down um down the circuit as well how do you give salbutamol intravenously so intravenously you can give um, five to 15 mics as a bolus and then you can run five to 15 mics per kilo per minute as an infusion uh, obviously this is associated with the tachycardia and a lactemia which could worsen our acidosis so it would be something that i would only do as a um sort of last stitched attempt before considering more invasive things like hemodialysis. Just clarify your dose. How many, uh, what's the infusion rate for salbutamol? Um, I believe it was, sorry, it's one to five mics per kilo per minute. One to five, correct. Excellent. Um, what else could you give? Let's say you've hyperventilated, you have given uh, calcium, you've given insulin dextrose and salbutamol. Is there anything else that could shift potassium rapidly? Um, yep. So one can give... Um, uh, so we've mentioned calcium, we can hyperventilate, we can give fruzamide. Um, sorry, I'm struggling to think of what you're getting at. Um, yeah, I'm struggling to think of what you're getting no, that, at. That's, that's all fine. Um, let's go with now, let's say clamping happens. Um, uh, so stage unclamping occurs and the surgery uh, goes ahead uneventfully. And then what do you, so let's say you're on the way to ICU, you've got everything you need for the transport, and then you see this rhythm on the way to transport. Let's say you've got everything you you need for, as per the professional document, and I'm just going to show you that rhythm now. What is this rhythm? What do you do? Uh, so this is a narrow complex tachycardia. Um, the rate is approximately, oh, look, it's difficult to say because it's irregularly irregular, but let's say it's about 150. Uh, I believe this is atrial fibrillation. Um, so in the first sense, um, look, the difficulties around management this is that I'm somewhere between theatres and ICU um, with a, you know, complicated patient who's just had a major operation. I'd be looking to see what degree of instability this is associated with. And if this is a perfusing rhythm, I'd be rushing very, very quickly to the either which whichever was closer, theatres or ICU, to manage right. that. Let's say the blood pressure it does drop to 70 from its uh, previous 100. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so you, you, you keep I, it If I was running a noradrenaline infusion, I'd increase the rate. Uh, if I wasn't, I'd give a bolus of metaraminol. Um, I would give this patient a bolus of 250 mils of crystalloid and aim to stabilize them using that um, before rushing to whichever was closer, theater or, or ICU. Right. Let's say you get to theater, uh, let's say you get to ICU. Uh, what do you do there? So uh, I'd involve the team that I was handing over to uh, and explain what had happened. And then the urgency of management would depend on this patient's stability. If they were acutely unstable, um, acknowledging the risk of um, embolus, um, but also the fact that this has only been rapid AF for a very short period of time, I would do a synchronized cardioversion using 150 joules um, 
noting that a higher energy is required to revert AF than other arrhythmias. If this patient was stable, then there would be a discussion um, between rate management and rhythm management, and we could consider um, amiodarone, an amiodarone bolus uh, and then infusion um, or um, or slowing the rate using, say, titrated small boluses of esmolol or an esmolol infusion. Sure. Uh, what's the dose of amiodarone that you give as bolus? Um, so it's 300 milligrams uh, f- uh, over approximately 10 to 20 minutes, uh, followed by 900 milligrams over 24 hours. What are the aspects of a, like defibrillation for this patient that you'd want to consider? How, how would you do it? Um, so I need to consider whether this patient, sorry, I didn't quite catch. I think you did say, though, did we extubate this patient or is the patient oh. still intubated and sedated? You know, let's say the patient's uh, in, 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 intubated and likely sedated 10 mils an hour propofol. Okay. Um, in that circumstance, uh, on a very low dose of propofol, but you know, tube tolerant, I'd give this patient approximately one to two milligrams of um, midazolam um, prior to a synced cardioversion. Then it would be a discussion with um, the team, uh, and we'd be using the principles of um, DCR safety. So the patient, so the pads would be placed on the patient um, in the ox- uh, on the precordium and in the auxilla, uh, and we'd be doing a synced cardioversion. And it's critical to make sure that the shock is synced, otherwise there's the risk of RNT phenomenon. And we'd use 150 joules, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Fantastic. Now, let's say that's all fine. Let's say um, after the, as the patient wakes up in the next few days, you find that the, the, the patient, you find that the patient has some level of uh, like motor dysfunction of the legs. Hmm. What, are, what are you thinking of? So I would break this down to the possibilities of a central versus a peripheral lesion. Uh, so a central lesion could be related to spinal cord ischemia during the period of clamping and unclamping and related to the operation itself and fluid shifts perioperatively. There's also the possibility of an acute um, spinal canal hematoma if we had done a neuraxial with that intrathecal morphine that we discussed earlier or placed a lumbar drain. And then prolifer- peripheral lesions I seem less likely to me if it's by bilateral compared to unilateral, but be considering lumbar plexus abnormalities, prolonged surgery, positioning, and those and the factors related to that. Um, I'd have a very low threshold to do an MRI, MRI on this patient emergently, looking for an acutely reversible cause. And in the first instances, I'd be wanting to maximize oxygen delivery to the spinal cord um, and minimize metabolic demand. You know, there's more that you can do for the former than a ladder. What is the blood supply to the spinal cord? So the blood supply to the spinal cord is via um, two anterior spinal arteries and a single posterior spinal artery. The anterior spinal arteries supply um, the anterior one-third and the posterior spinal arteries supplies the posterior two-thirds. They come off the vertebral arteries um, and the posterior may come off the posterior inferior cerebellar artery. Um, and, they're, um, and the drainage is via, I believe, three paired uh, anterior and posterior um, lumbar vein, uh, spinal veins. Excellent. And what is, is there a particularly important artery in all of that? Maybe. Yeah, so there's an artery of Adam Kowitz, um, which is typically located around T10, although some spinal surgeons believe that it doesn't exist. Okay, got it. <laughs> Amen. And that is the end of the Viva. Well done. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Um, look, I, I think that'll be extremely intimidating for a lot of people because, you, you know, you obviously do that extremely well. Um, and I'll run through this now. So this is the pretty much the session done for YouTube. Um, I've got all of this loaded up on the uh, final exam course uh, at anesthesia.thinkific.com. And so we'll go through the feedback as well and the slides and that. Um, So yep, thanks very much for watching and listening, everyone. And now we're going to head off and give some feedback. Thank you so much for listening to this anesthesia final exam case scenario. 
for the full episode with all the feedback and notes, please check out my final exam course at the link provided in the story notes. So thanks for listening and please share with anyone who might be interested. See you next time.